chapter 11, verse 1, And Nachash, the Ammonite, he went up. And that expression, he went up, that always means he went up for war. Who did he go up to war against? He went up and he camped against Yavesh Gilad. So this event is taking place on the east bank of the Jordan River. You have two and a half tribes there, Reuven, God, and half of Menashe. And they're kind of isolated there on the east bank. They have neighbors like Ammon and Moab and Adom going south. So these Jews of Yavesh Gilad are getting attacked by Nachash Ammoni. Nachash in English is a snake, but that's the name of the king of the Ammonites. His name is Nachash. And when it says, he encamped against them, that means he's placing a siege on them, either to subjugate them or to conquer them. And the verse continues, And all the men of Yavesh Gilad said to him, that is, they said to Nachash, Make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. So the Jews of Yavesh Gilad, they don't even want to put up a fight. They want to subjugate themselves right now to Nachash the Ammonite. And we'll see that with verse 2. The Nachash, he wants more than that. Verse 2, Vayomor aleihem Nachash Amoni, and Nachash the Ammonite said to them, Bezot echrot lechem brit. Oh, you want to make a treaty? I'll make a treaty with you, on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you, the Samtia cherpa, I'll call Yisrael, and I'll make that a mockery or a disgrace on all of Israel. So the Jews are willing to surrender and be servants of Ammon, but that's not enough for Nachash, the king of Ammon, he wants more than that. He wants all the Jews of Yavesh Gilad to gouge out their right eye as a sign of the covenant. And he explains why he wants to do it. I want to make a disgrace out of all of Israel. So this Nachash sounds like a sadist. He wants the Jews to gouge out their right eye and only then will he allow them to be servants to him. And obviously he's making a mockery out of the Jews of Yavesh Gilad. And just to show the mockery in Hebrew, to make a brit, to make a treaty, is lichrot brit. So krita is to make a treaty, but lichrot is also to cut. So he says, you want a treaty? You want a lichrot brit? Then lichrot et ha'ayn yamin. Then cut out your right eye. So you have the word lichrot, meaning to make a brit and to cut your eye out. He's using the same word. And he explains his intention at the end of the verse. al he wants it to be a reproach against all of Israel, a disgrace of all of Israel. Not just the Yavesh Gilad, but he's counting on the fact that the Jews aren't going to come to their rescue. They're going to let their brothers walk around with one eye. If they're afraid to confront Nachash then it is a disgrace to all of Israel. And that's what the Mitzudat David says here on the words, Yisrael, and it will make a disgrace of all of Israel. If the Jews can't save you from this disgrace, yeah, it'll be a cherpa, a reproach to all of Israel. And on this mitzudat David, Rabbi Kahana writes, and I'll read it in Hebrew, Mikan Roim, from here we see, that the obligation to help the fellow Jew, because he's a Jew, that obligation stems from Avat Yisrael, there's a mitzvah to love your fellow Jew, but that obligation also stems from the need to prevent the humiliation and degradation of Israel because that's a chilul Hashem. Because when a Jew is humiliated and downtrodden, that's a chilul Hashem. Because the Gentiles are saying, why doesn't the God of those Jews help them? He must be very weak or maybe he doesn't exist at all. And that's why chilul Hashem literally means to empty out Hashem from the world. That's the deeper reason why it's a mitzvah to help your fellow Jew. 
And Rabbi Kahana adds in his commentary that if one Jew behaves like a coward, that's reflection on all Jews. The Gentiles will think that all Jews are cowards. But if that Jew reacts and fights back, then he raises the horn of the entire nation of Israel. And the rabbi concludes that that's the responsibility of the Jew not to be a wimp, because what he's doing is just encouraging the Gentile to beat up other Jews, because he thinks all Jews are like that. So every Jew has a responsibility to stand tall and not back down. In any case, getting back to our story, we have a cruel enemy on our hands here. Nachash wants to cut their eye out. Lichrot ayin as a sign of cutting a deal, so to speak. You want to make a treaty? You want to cut a deal? Then cut out your right eye. Verse 3, And the elders or the leaders of Yavesh Gilad, they said to him, Just give us seven days. So we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, then we'll surrender to you. Literally, we'll come out to you. Maybe they're behind the closed wall. There's a siege on them. And we'll come out to you if nobody comes to save us. Just give us seven days. Now, this verse demonstrates what a low level the Jewish people are on right here. They're being threatened to have their right eye cut out. And they're saying, let us think about it. Give us seven days to think about it. Not only that, but in verse 1, the people of Yavesh Gilad go right to Nachash and say, make a treaty and we'll be your servants. They're willing right off the bat to lose their independence and to subjugate themselves to Ammon. They didn't even consider fighting for their freedom. It's only when Nachash threatens them in the second verse that I'm going to cut your eye out, where they say, uh-oh, we better get some help here. But if it wasn't for that physical threat, they were ready and willing to be subservient to the Ammonites. The minute there was a threat of their physical bodies being abused, then they want some help. We want to send messengers throughout Israel. And if no one comes to rescue us, we're willing to do this. And you really see from this how Nachash the Ammonite really wanted to make a cherpa al kol Yisrael. His goal really was to disgrace all of Israel because he has no problem with the people of Yvesh Gilad going out and trying to find somebody to rescue them. He's counting on the fact that nobody will. And that will be the shame to all of Israel. The very fact that he's giving them seven days to look for a matzil shows that he's more interested in disgracing the Jewish people than he is in having slaves here. And there's an interesting uh, Gomorrah in Ta'anit, which kind of expresses this. It says that in the future, Latid Lavo, all the animals are going to gather around the snake and they're going to say to the snake, the lion kills because it wants to eat. The wolf devours and eats. But you, the snake, what enjoyment do you get out of what you do? So the animals of the jungle are asking the snake, what is your benefit when you bite somebody and poison them and they die? What do you get out of it? And that's relevant to our Nachash over here. Nachash Amoni, that snake king, the king of Ammon, who wants to see these one-eyed Jews, their eyes gouged out. What benefit does he get? Well, the benefit he gets is the desecration of the God of Israel. Okay, so what are the people of Yavesh Gilad going to do? Is there any defenders for the Jewish people here? Is there a Jewish army? Is there a JDL at least? Let's look. Verse 4. By Malachim Givat Shaul. And the messages went to Givat Shaul. So they go to the place of Saul. Interesting, because they said they're going to send messages throughout the entire border of Israel, and they don't do that. They go straight to Givat Shaul, where King Saul is. And they spoke the words in the ears of the people. That is, they repeated the whole story, what's going on. And the people wept aloud. So their reaction is to weep, which is kind of pathetic. No anger, 
no readiness to defend the honor of the Jewish people and rescue the residents of Yevesh Gelad. They don't even have a Havamina to fight. That is, it's not even a consideration. So this is again a reflection that the Jewish people were not really on a high spiritual level. They didn't have a lot of bitachon and emunah and Hashem. I mean, forget about bitachon and emunah and Hashem. They didn't even have the minimal self-esteem to get up and fight for their freedom. Now, one uh, peripheral point that the commentators mention, and it goes back to that story of Pelegish Pegiva at the end of the book of Judges. There's the story about the concubine in the valley. What happens is that the tribe of Benjamin commits an atrocity and all the tribes of Israel go to war against the tribe of Benjamin. And after two or three attempts, they finally defeat Benjamin and almost wipe out the entire tribe. And the only people who didn't go out to fight against Benjamin was the people of Yavesh Gilad. So this is like a measure for measure. You didn't go out and fight for your brothers against the tribe of Benjamin? Well, now nobody's going to go out to fight for you. But there's a further connection. At the end of that episode, the tribe of Benjamin had been wiped out. And in order to perpetuate the tribe, they were permitted to marry only the women of Yavesh Gilad because everybody else swore not to marry them anymore. They were so angry with them. So there's a Keshu Mishpachti, there's a family connection really between the tribe of Benjamin and the people of Yavesh Gilad. So maybe that's why they ran to Givachol, the place of Benjamin. But more likely they ran there because King Saul is there and they're trying to get some help. And he is going to help them, as we see in the next verses. Verse 5, And behold, Saul was returning from the fields with his cattle. And Saul said, What's wrong with the people? What is everybody crying about? And they repeated to him what the men of Yavesh Gilad had said. Now, before going on to the next verse to read Saul's reaction to this, some of the commentators chime in on the fact that Saul's back in his ranch. Like, what's he doing on his farm being a cowboy when he's supposed to be the king of Israel? And Rashi and the Dat Mikra, they say that this is a sign of his humility. That even after being anointed king, he did not stop doing his daily chores. But other commentators like the Radak and the Arbanel, they see Saul being back on his ranch as a sign that he was not acting in his capacity as king. As we saw at the end of the previous chapter, after seeing that he wasn't accepted by a lot of the people there, it says he held his peace and he went home. So here he is back home at the ranch. But now we'll see from his reaction that Saul is made of different stuff. And when Saul heard their words, a spirit of God came upon him. And he burned with a great anger. So when Saul heard this disgrace, in a very natural and spontaneous way, he was filled with fury. And it says, Vayichar a lot of fury. And that reaction to the Chilul Hashem, that's the Ruach Elokim. That's the Spirit of God upon him. The Spirit of God mentioned here, it's not some magical dust that's dropped upon him from the heavens. But when a Jew is zealous for Hashem's kavod, and he's sensitive to this open and obvious desecration of God's name, this cherpa that the Ammonites were perpetrating on the Bnei Israel, and he feels it in every fiber of his body. His immediate reaction to this, his zealotry, that's Ruach Elokim. That's the Spirit of God upon him. And that's basically what the Rambam says in his famous work, Moren Nevuchim, A Guide to the Perplexed, where he gives the different degrees of divine revelation that somebody can have. There's 11 levels where Moses achieved the highest level of prophecy. And the lowest level is when it says what we have here with Saul, and the Spirit of God came upon him. We see that expression with the judges as well, with Samson, with Yiftach. And the Rambam says in God to the Perplexed, 
So what is this Ruach Elokim? What is this Spirit of God? And I'm quoting him in Guide to the Perplexed in part two. When a person is inspired to do something great and to deliver a community of good people from the hands of evildoers, or even to save one person, and he finds it in himself and he's moved to act, then he is provided with divine assistance. And this divine influence is called the Spirit of the Lord. And when a person is under that influence, we say that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him or rested upon him or the Lord was with him. So like we said, this Spirit of the Lord that fell upon Saul here, it's not something that just dropped upon him from the heavens, but it's something that he already had in him. And then Hashem did his part. In any case, we see the difference between Saul's reaction and everybody else's. While they're crying and fetching, we see here that Saul is imbued with this holy indignation to erase this debasement and defilement of the Jewish people and their God. Okay, so what's Saul going to do about it? Verse 7, Vayikach tzemer bakar. So he took a pair of oxen, and he cut them up into pieces. And he sent these pieces by messengers throughout all of Israel, proclaiming, Anybody who doesn't come out to war after me and after Shmuel, this is what will be done to his oxen. That is, I'm going to cut your axes into pieces if you don't follow me and Samuel into this war. So Saul cuts up his own oxen. And we know he cares about his oxen. Last chapter, he was walking around looking for them. But here he cuts them up and says that this is what will be done to anyone who doesn't follow Saul and Samuel. Now, why does he mention Samuel here? Well, the Redak says like this, since Saul had not yet been totally accepted by everybody and not received the allegiance of the entire nation, Omar Hare Shmuel. So he incorporated Shmuel's name here. Meaning, if you don't want to follow me, at least follow the head rabbi Shmuel. So that's the perush of the Redak, that Saul incorporated Shmuel's name here because he knew that a lot of the nation wasn't going to follow him but they'll follow Shmuel. And his goal is to get as many as people possible to join this war. So what was the reaction of the people? And fear of the Lord fell upon the people. And they went forth as one man. So Saul's tactic of cutting up the oxen, we see it works here. The people are united. And that's what the verse means when it says, as one man. That's an expression of unity for what we saw up to now was a very fragmented nation. But here, they're going out as one man. And notice it says that the terror of God fell upon them. It wasn't their fear of losing their oxen that motivated them here. But clearly the verse says that it was fear of God to disobey his anointed one, King Saul. Okay, so now King Saul as commander-in-chief, what's he going to do? And he mustered them up in a place called Bezek. That is, he's gathering his army. And the pshat, the simple understanding, that he gathers them in a place called Bazek. But Rashi comes along with the words of the sages and says like this, Our rabbi said that he counted them with fragments of earthenware or fragments of pottery. What's going on? Well, we know there's a halacha, Jewish law, that you're not allowed to count Jews. Why aren't you allowed to count Jews? Maybe we'll explain that another time. But you don't count Jews. So how do you count them? Let's say you need a minion of 10 Jews. You got to count them. So you do all these tricks, and what they did here is every Jew brought this fragment of plastilina, of clay. So in order to know how many soldiers showed up, they didn't count the soldiers, they counted the pieces of clay that they brought. 
So that changes our verse a little bit. Instead of saying he counted them or he mustered them up in a place called Bezek, we say that he counted them with the fragments of clay or earthenware that they brought with them. And we're going to see the same thing in a couple of chapters now in the War of Amalek, where every Jew is going to bring a lamb and they're going to count the lambs instead of counting the Jews. At this point in time, the Jews are broke. All they have is pieces of clay and that's what he counts. Rabbi Kahana mentions here that there's a special significance that each Jew brought earthenware or, or clay or fragments of pottery. It expresses the fact that man is nothing more than a cheres nishbar. He's fragile as broken pottery. And the only koch he has, the only strength he has, is what the Almighty gives him. And so that delivers a message to the soldiers that if Hashem is with us, then there's no reason to fear the Ammonites. And it's like saying as you go out to war, I'm like Play-Doh in your hands. I'm putty in your hands. Whatever happens, happens. It's for the best. Hashem, you're the one who decides things in the end. And that gives bitachon for somebody in a dangerous situation. And that's where these fragments of clay came to represent. Okay, so Saul musters up his army. How many were there? Ubenei Yisrael, Shloshimeot Elif. From the men of Israel, there were 300,000. For Ish Yehuda, Elif. And the men of Judea numbered 30,000. And that's not a bad turnout. Why are the Jews of Israel and the Jews of Judea counted separately? It's not like there's a split in the kingdom. Maybe we'll discuss that at another time. But right now we got to get back to the wars. Verse 9. And they said to the messengers who had come, that is the leaders of the army, or Shmuel or Saul, said to those messengers from Yavesh Galad, Go back to the people of Yavesh Galad and relay them the following message. Which means, by this time tomorrow, by late afternoon, you will be rescued. And so those messengers came back to Yavesh Galad. They went and reported this to the men of Yavesh. And the men of Yavesh were so happy. They were ecstatic. Obviously, they're happy to know that somebody's coming to their rescue. But they're also relieved because this whole thing took about seven days. And that was the seven-day respite that Ammon was giving them. And it took time to go to Givat Shaul for Saul to send out his message about joining him. All that took time. And meanwhile, the residents of Yavesh Galad are sitting there sweating it out. A lot of pressure. And now those messengers have come back to tell him, don't worry about it. By this time tomorrow, you're going to be saved. You got somebody backing you up to fight for you. So of course they rejoiced, but again, they're also relieved. Okay, verse 10. And the people of Yavesh said, They said to the Ammonites, Tomorrow, we're going to come out to you. And you can do to us whatever you like. So it sounds like they're surrendering. Tomorrow, we're going to come out to you to surrender because nobody came to help us. They're giving the king of Ammon an impression that nobody came to help them. And like they said in verse 3, We'll come out to you. And so that's what they say here. We shall come out to you. And this is important to remember. With all the inspiration we saw that King Saul has here, that doesn't mean that you don't employ tactics and strategy through natural means. So they don't tell the Ammonites we're coming at you with our army. They make it look like, yeah, nobody's showing up. We'll come out to you like we said we would after the seven days. They want to keep that element of surprise going. So again, you rely on Hashem, but that doesn't mean you don't plan and use your sechel and your intellect to design a plan of attack. So this is a great military maneuver. Make them think that nobody's going to show up. We'll come out to you, just like we said. And boy, is that Jewish army going to come out to them. Verse 11, And it was on the next day, 
וישם שאול את העם שלושה ראשים, והצור separated the people into three divisions. So we see Saul as commander-in-chief is doing something very similar to what Gideon did and Avimelech did in the book of Judges. He breaks the people up into three contingents. ויבוא בתוך המחנה בהשמרות הבוקר, and they broke into the camp of the Ammonites during the morning watch, which is literally in the middle of the night. So this is a total surprise attack here. Amon did not know the Jews were organizing a war against them, and it's done in the middle of the night. So like we said, Hashem is with you, but you have to have a good plan. And they slaughtered the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those that were left, they scattered, and no two of them were left together. So what these three divisions did is that each one attacked Amon from a different position. Everybody coming from a different side, and the Ammonites never knew what hit him. So this is a great victory, a great start for Saul's career. And it says in verse 12, And the people said to Shmuel, Remember those people who mocked Saul and said, Who is this guy that he should reign over us? Hand over those people who said that, and let's put them to death. So everybody loves a winner. When those B'nai B'lial people mocked Saul and said, Nobody came to Saul's defense. But now that he's a winner... Everybody loves them. They say, hand over those guys who are against Saul. Turn these men over to us so we can put them to death. Let's get them. And Saul said, No one will be put to death today. For this is the day the Lord has rescued Israel. Now, is Saul doing the right thing here? The people want to put to death those people who had derided Saul in the last chapter and said, ah, who is this guy that he should save us? And Saul is saying here, no, Nobody is going to be put to death today? Was that the right thing to do? Well, there's actually a machloket here, and some rabbis say that Saul was being lenient again and should not have forgiven them. But others, like the Malbim, defend Saul and say he did the right thing. And I believe Saul was definitely doing the right thing because he's acting here from strength, not weakness. And if you look back on past kings, like Solomon, for instance, he didn't kill Odaniyahu right away. It was only after Odaniyahu tried to pull some more stick and try to marry Avishag Shunamit. But at the outset, Solomon didn't put him to death. He just told Odaniyahu, just go home. And King David also forgave those who rebelled against him. After the Avshalom rebellion, Avishai wanted to kill Shimi ben Gera. And what did King David say? He said, look, everybody knows I'm king now. We just won the war. I don't want to put anybody to death now. I don't need any kind of show of strength to prove anything. And I think we have the same exact situation here with Saul. He just led the Jews to a great victory. Everybody accept him as king now. He doesn't have to prove anything and put to death all his ex-detractors. Again, he's coming here from strength. And by not taking vengeance on those who were against him at the beginning, he's basically saying what David said back then. Look, I'm the king now. Everybody knows it now. There's no reason to take vengeance on those people who were against me at the outset. And that's why Saul uses the expression, no one will be put to death today. Why? Because today is a day of simcha. It's a day Yashem brought us a great victory. It's not a day to settle scores. And by the way, there is a perush of the Ralbag that when Saul said nobody's going to die today, he meant, well, today nobody's going to get executed, but they might later on. Verse 14, And Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal. And there we will renew the kingship. And Rashi says that Shmuel is doing this, he's renewing the kingdom, because previously, when they had a public ceremony for Saul, we saw opposition, we saw detractors. So there's a need to do it again when everybody's on board with the new king. 
And it says they go into the Gilgal. Now, like we said, there's a couple of places called Gilgal. This is probably the one near Jericho where Joshua also landed because they're coming back from the east bank of the Jordan. They had just defeated the Ammonites from that side of the Jordan River. So going west, they probably hit Jericho and the Gilgal. And that's where Shmuel the prophet is going to reaffirm the commitment to the king. And now we conclude the chapter Verse 15, And all the people went to Gilgal. And they made Saul the king before the Lord in Gilgal. And this is basically the third time Saul has been anointed. The first time he was alone with Shmuel on the rooftop. Second time in the last chapter when he was chosen with the Urim and the Tumim and he wasn't accepted by everybody. And now for the third time in Gilgal, he again is being announced as king. And that's because for a king to rule, he does need the acceptance of the people to some extent. As we said, when Saul was, was anointed the first time on the rooftop by Shmuel the prophet, that was the real anointment. That was the real deal from the heavens. But still, a king with no support can't really be a king. Ain't melech bliam. You're not a king if nobody's following you. And so while it's true that a king can't be a king if he doesn't have a nation behind him, remember the verse says, and there they made Saul the king before the Lord in Gilgal. It has to be before the Lord. We're not talking Western democracy here where the people decide who the king is. It's before the Lord. None of this means anything if it's not Lifnei Hashem before the Lord. It's the Lord who sanctions it. But of course, technically speaking, there is no king if nobody accepts him. And that's the idea on Rosh Hashanah, that we mamlichet Hashem, we accept him as our king. That's the first step. Not that he wasn't a king before, or not that Hashem needs us, but you still have this concept that we're mamlichet Hashem, we accept Hashem as our king. So now that Saul has support, they're going to renew the kingdom. And the verse continues, And they slaughtered peace offerings before the Lord. And Saul and all the people held a great celebration. So like we said, the first coronation we had in Mitzpah didn't go so great. But now in Gilgal, we see a consensus. Everybody's accepting Saul as the new king of Israel. And before signing off one corollary to this story, at the end of King Saul's career, he's killed on Mount Gilboa in a war against the Philistines. And the Philistines take the body of Saul and the body of Saul's sons and hang them on the wall in Beit Shan to demoralize the Jewish people. And those bodies are decaying on the walls of Beit Shan. And the people of Yavesh Gilad remember what Saul did for them and they risk their lives. And in the middle of the night, they take down those bodies of Saul and his three sons and give it a proper burial. So that just shows their hakarata tov, that they had gratitude and never forgot what Saul did for them. And they're going to remain very loyal to the house of Binyamin all the way through. So that wraps up the chapter. In the next chapter, we're going to stay right here in the Gilgal. And Shmuel is going to give them a very surprising, riveting speech about their selection of a king.